Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. So I have a confession to make. I bought something recently on Amazon because it was convenient. But how does our reliance on one-click online shopping affect the country and its growing income and regional inequalities? Coming up where we live, we talk to Alec McGillis, ProPublica reporter and author of Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America. McGillis writes, Amazon is the ultimate lens on the country's divides because it was present just about everywhere. And the tech giant has emerged more dominant than ever despite the pandemic. Have you or someone you know worked for Amazon? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. First, a new Amazon site, a distribution center, may be coming to the Waterbury area. If approved, it would be the 12th Amazon site in our state. Recently, town officials in Waterbury and Naugatuck approved a land purchase by a developer to build this potential distribution center. But it's not a done deal. Connecticut Public's Ali Ashinsky joins us with the latest. She covers the greater Waterbury area with Report for America and with Connecticut Public. Ali, welcome back to the show. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me. So tell us about this location for this proposed distribution center and where the plan stands right now. Yeah, so it is 150 or so acres in the Gilmartin neighborhood of Waterbury. It's a um, it's a large undeveloped plot of land that nearby residents say is mostly rock and <laughs> to be developed uh, would require a lot of blasting. Uh, Blue Water Property Group, which is the developer working for Amazon, says also that it's going to require a lot of blasting. Um, the mayor of Waterbury, Neil O'Leary, says described the process last week as at the 10-yard line. And for those who aren't into football field, there's 100 yards on a football <laughs> field. <laughs> so um, that is it is very early in the process. Um, and it's a troubled piece of, of property. Uh, there's going to be both environmental concerns to the rock, but then Blue Water will also have to meet traffic environmental standards, light pollution standards, in order to get to just shovel in the ground. You mentioned it's a a troubled uh, parcel of land. You talked to some local residents who are also concerned about this location. I wanted to play a soundbite from 94-year-old Ruth Berry. She's a resident of the Gilmartin neighborhood that you mentioned, where this facility is proposed to be built. Let's take a listen. Every, usually every 10 years, they, they come up with a proposal. This is a, a land I used to take my Cub Scouts up there and, and, uh, on hikes. And a lot of people hike up there, but it's, it's all rocks and boulders. When they, it, it, we're so afraid, all of us, that our homes, which were built in 1955, are going to be destroyed. 
Mm. Now, can you clarify that for us when she talks about homes on this property? There aren't any right now? Yes. So it's like just trees, rocks, deer, some, you know, different animals. Uh, there's no homes. It is surrounded on a few sides by residential neighborhoods. She like by saying destroyed the concern there uh, that I understand is blasting, hurting the foundations or other structural integrity of the home, as well as the experience of living there through construction, as well as their property value. Um, and this facility would take up some of the last green space in Waterbury. There is not a lot of green space in Waterbury besides public parks, but this is sort of a, a different experience of hiking. Um, and that clip, I met uh, Ruth Berry last week at an info session between the city, uh, Blue Water Property Group, and the Gilmartin Community Club. The Gilmartin Community Club has existed since the 70s, and they have fought off four different attempts. Well, this would be the fourth attempts to develop this land. Every single one has, has realized that it's a very difficult piece of land to develop. It's, it's rock. It's hard to build on. The first was a dog track. The second was a casino. And the third was a mall uh, throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So it's a pretty interesting history there. And yet, um, you know, Ruth has alluded to the rocky terrain. There have been attempts uh, to develop this property. As you mentioned, it's the only one of the only green spaces uh, in the city. Why has it been a commercial target uh, for a while? Well, it gets to a bigger issue in Waterbury and in the Naugatuck Valley, which is this was throughout the 20th century and even the 19th century, a huge industrial hub with now lots of brownfields much of the land that is empty and not bringing in taxes for waterbury or the surrounding suburbs um, is contaminated and so in order to develop upon it you either have to knock down a big building cap a brownfield do all that the city and the um, council of governments in the region just last week received four million dollars to work on that but it is something you know, that's sort of a curse of economic development in this region. Um, this plot of land is zoned industrial. It is like, for the most part, even though it'll be really hard, there'll be five or so years of zoning hearings, tests, different like um, hoops they have to jump through. It will be easier than turning a brownfield or turning the old Brass Mill Center, which is the mall right off 84 into that piece of land. Um, so there's a lot of challenges in Waterbury, and this is actually one of the sort of easiest ones, as I understand. You're hearing Ali Oshinsky here on Where We Live. She's a reporter for Connecticut Public covering the greater Waterbury area with Report for America as we talk about this potential, uh, this plan uh, to build a distribution, an Amazon distribution center uh, in Waterbury, I think also along the, the Naugatuck uh, line, uh, Alley. You can join us, especially if you live in Waterbury, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You mentioned this community forum where you also spoke with Hank Lee, who voiced concerns about pay transparency. Let's take a listen. With Amazon and Waterbury, I, I want there to be transparency on what the rates of pay are going to be and what the business practices are going to be. I know that there are people that are questioning their business practices in other places. And before we go build a facility and have this thing all set up, like I said, are the people going to be paid enough money or are they going to be living on the side of the building? 
And we, we know that public officials are celebrating this potential move by Amazon. But let's talk about what Hank mentioned. What do we know about starting pay if this distribution center does open in a few years? And how competitive are these jobs in the area or how would they be, uh, Ali? Yeah, so there's no jobs yet because the facility isn't there yet. Um, it'll be about five years by some estimates to actually have people working on site. Um, today, in 2022, as we know, there's lots of inflation going on, but today, the national starting salary Amazon advertises is $18 per hour. Um, similar positions in Connecticut, and, and those salaries are regionally different. Um, similar positions in Connecticut are advertised at like $17.50 to $17.75 an hour. As just sort of like an understanding of what that gets you, um, MIT calculates a living wage for a single adult, no children in Waterbury, and this includes housing, food, medical taxes. Um, they need to be making a little over $19 an hour just to live. About a fifth of Waterbury residents live in poverty, and that's, you know, poverty is just one measure. It's not enough to live in our modern economy. So by another measure, 65% of households in Waterbury don't have enough to pay for the basics of living in our modern modern economy, including like a smartphone and a healthcare plan. Um, but I'm frequently in Waterbury and I was at a job center recently and I was looking up at a bulletin board full of job listings and the Amazon salary was the best one. Other jobs there were like $15 an hour, $13 an hour. So when those are the other options, both to city officials and people looking for jobs, the Amazon jobs sound pretty good. And what about benefits, Sally? Yeah, so Amazon says there's a whole list of benefits, including medical, dental, paid uh, family leave from day one. Um, at the community uh, session last week, the mayor of Waterbury said that the benefits were better than the um the city benefits. And he said, nobody complains about the city benefits. Um, but if you want to talk about benefits to the city, <laughs> um, the benefits to the city include taxes and also these jobs. There's an estimate of about a thousand jobs coming to the city. Hmm. Uh, we mentioned public officials, you know, they see this as a positive, including Waterbury Mayor O'Leary. And he's looking at, you know, some of the stories uh, happening in other uh, towns uh, where they have an Amazon presence. He cited North Haven. What can you tell us, Sally? Yeah, so the North Haven Fulfillment Center opened in like 2019. And that brought, today has about 3,000 jobs to the town. Um, last week, Mayor O'Leary said the town is netting $5 million. Uh, so... But here's the but. Um, in order to attract these, these fulfillment centers, the cities and towns are giving pretty significant tax, uh, you know, deductions or tax reductions. So um, in North Haven, for instance, there's a seven-year adjustment period. So it's going to take seven years for the fulfillment center to pay its full tax bill. It will only have to, it's the first year it had to pay 25% of its tax bill. And then it goes up 35, 45 every year. I looked into other Blue Water Property Group Amazon centers. So Blue Water is the developer for, for Amazon fulfillment centers. And some of them uh, were giving 
10 or 20 year tax breaks estimated at like $11 million or $36 million. Um, but on the other hand, the money bringing, coming into North Haven brings in 7% of the town's tax revenue and the mill rate, which is the effective property tax rate in the town, it did go down by half, a, half of a mill after the fulfillment center opened. Waterbury has the second highest mill rate in Connecticut. Um, so people who live there or don't live there, um, or sorry, people who work there or won't work there uh, might enjoy having an Amazon in town to reduce their tax bill. And uh, earlier when we were talking about benefits, our, our understanding is on day one, you know, down the road, if this does open, uh, staff would get health insurance, but family leave may come after a year or so of working, Allie. Is that under your understanding? Yes. Yes. Sorry about that. Again, you're hearing Ali Oshinsky here on Where We Live as we talk about this potential Amazon distribution center uh, in the Waterbury area. As Ali mentioned, uh, it's not a done deal uh, for a variety of reasons, as she laid out. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I wanted to bring in another perspective on this. With us on Zoom is Alec McGillis, Republican reporter and author of Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America. Alec, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So uh, Ali laid out, you know, the pros and cons of an Amazon distribution center coming to the Waterbury area. You know, this has uh, similarly been played out in, in many communities uh, across our country. Uh, this pushback, uh, not uncommon. Uh, no, it's not uncommon. You're actually seeing more of it now. And, and a lot of the pushback often has to do with the point that Ali brought up just at the end there involving the tax incentives that Amazon's getting when it builds these warehouses or also when it builds the big data centers that that house all the, the, the it's sort of cloud operations, which is a whole other part of the company. And I looked at this a lot in my book, just the, the negotiations that go on when the company comes to town and basically pressures local officials, state officials into giving the company these huge, huge tax subsidies and incentives um, in exchange for building a new facility. And, and one of the real concerns with these negotiations is that they're often done in total secret. The company insists on absolute secrecy until the very last moment when it'll suddenly announce that it's coming to a given place um, with, with you know, million, tens of millions of dollars often in incentives. And you know, the real question when you, at the, sort of at the heart of this is why, why these communities are still feeling the need to, to give these incentives. The, the fact is that, that Amazon now really kind of needs to be just about everywhere um, now that it's gotten so huge, so it's selling so much of its stuff, we're buying so much from them, that they kind of need to be just about everywhere to fulfill that promise of one or two day delivery. So they actually, they don't have as much leverage as they kind of make themselves out to have when, they, when they're offering to come to a place. Um, they really kind of do need to be there um, in a given area. And so um, so it's been it's 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 kind of disheartening to see communities still feel like they have to be kind of desperately throwing these incentives at at the company when in fact you know the company really does does need to be there. It's not like you can just go over to the next state over if you're not going to give it these millions. But uh, but many communities still still are willing to do so uh, for the reasons that Ali describes because they feel like they just need to get some kind of jobs, um, some kind of economic development into their community that's been that's been devastated by years of, of the industrialization and job loss. 
Right. Uh, Amazon told us that about 18,000 Connecticut residents are currently Amazon employees for a state of uh, our size. Does that strike you as high, Alec? Uh, no, that sounds about right, actually. That sounds just about what, what's what I, sort of in line with what you have here, say, in, I, I live in, in Baltimore. And so in Maryland, they're, they're up around um, 20,000 or so. Um, and, and just growing by leaps and bounds. I mean, it's just been incredible to see the, the growth just in these last couple of years. Um, you know, the companies now during the pandemic just soared over past a million U.S. employees. Um, it's now the second largest U- private U.S. employer after Walmart and gaining fast on Walmart. Um, it's just, it's hard to overstate just how astonishing this growth was during the pandemic when when some of so many of us who previously had some qualms about about buying from Amazon to shift it wholesale into that kind of one-click um, approach to life. Mm, that's right. In your book, I believe you say we were doing our part flattening the curve, and that included buying everything on Amazon because we stayed home. Right. I mean, there there had been there was you know in the past, I think a lot of people felt some real kind of compunction, some some conscience about about buying from Amazon because they were aware of just what the working conditions were like in the warehouses. They were aware of the effect that that buying from Amazon has on, on local businesses and just money that used to stay in the community now just flowing out of out of your community to to Seattle to the richest sec, second richest man in the world and his and his um his this huge company that's way out there in, in the West Coast and 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 I think people used to feel some some real you know some kind of um misgivings about that. But then along came the pandemic and it was as if we suddenly had this license to um, this kind of moral license to, to go that route with our daily habits. And not only could you did you no longer have to feel guilt about buying a ton from Amazon, you can always feel virtuous about it. It was this almost a sign of virtue that you had cardboard boxes piling up outside your house, that you were you were being safe, you were hunkering down, you were flattening the curve. Again, you're hearing Alec McGillis, ProPublica reporter and author of Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America. We're going to uh, dig in more uh, to his book, what inspired him and what um, many news reports are missing when we think about uh, the implications of Amazon besides uh, some of the economic benefits for towns and their tax base. But I want to thank Connecticut Public's Ali Oshinsky, who covers the greater Waterbury area with Report for America, for telling us what's happening in the Waterbury area. Ali, thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me, Lucy. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. 
The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Amazon's presence in, in Connecticut goes beyond its zippy vans driving around your neighborhood. It has warehouses located in the towns of Windsor and North Haven and a sortation center in Wallingford. There are eight Amazon delivery stations in places like Orange, Danbury, and Cromwell. And as we heard earlier in the show, a 12th Amazon site in Connecticut may be coming to Waterbury. Also in Branford, its local planning and zoning board just approved the last of a three-part application for construction of an Amazon delivery facility. That's according to Zip06.com, an online news site and community forum for the shoreline. Now, do you live in one of these cities or towns? What changes have you noticed where you live? You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, while much has been reported about Amazon's working conditions and worker pay, we're talking about Amazon's wider impact on our country with my guest, Alec McGillis. ProPublica reporter and author of Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America. Alec, I understand that you grew up in Massachusetts, and when you think about the inspiration for you to write this book, uh, uh, tell us a little bit about that, and what is missing in all the news reports about the economic benefits of Amazon coming to a community? Sure, I'd be glad to. Um, yeah, my, the inspiration of this book actually goes back years, and it goes back to years of my watching these growing regional gaps in America between a small handful of kind of what I think of as winner-take-all cities, kind of rich-get-richer cities like Boston, for instance, and then a whole bunch of smaller, mid-sized and smaller left-behind cities and towns around the country that have been falling behind those, those, those winner-take-all hubs. And for me, it really goes back to growing up in Pittsfield um, in western Massachusetts, two and a half hours west of Boston, right on the New York line. Um, used to be a very very uh, prosperous middle-class city um, fueled by General Electric, which had a big presence there in Pittsfield. And then as I was growing up, he uh, pulled out of town um, in the in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and um, and was and really left the city in incredibly dire straits. And and I would just watched as, as Pittsfield and other cities like it in Massachusetts fell further and further behind the big sort of metro Boston bubble and while well, well, Boston was becoming just wealthier and wealthier and wealthier, and and that really saddened me and bothered me as I was growing up, and then I saw it replicated all over the country. I was as a national political reporter for the Washington Post. I was going all around the Midwest and Appalachia a lot in that sort of Great Recession years, and watching, seeing just how far, how much a lot of cities in in those regions were falling behind. I'd come back to Washington D.C. Um, where the post, where I was based for the Washington Post, and I would just see this incredible prosperity there in Washington, the, the richest city in the country, um, and not just pr- prosperity, but a real complacency, a real kind of cluelessness about disconnect, about just how badly things were going elsewhere in the country. Um, and then I saw it again um, when I moved back recently to Baltimore about nine years ago, and this is the gap between Washington and Baltimore, two cities that used to be very, um, very similar in size and, and, and prosperity, now just on completely different trajectories, despite being only 40 miles apart. And 
and I just saw all these disparities around the country, um, and I saw how unhealthy they were for the country. They're unhealthy for both sorts of cities, both the winner-take-all cities that have become so expensive, so almost unlivable in a lot of ways, and then the left-behind cities that are dealing with you know, depopulation and 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 despair and 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 real just. Uh, you know, a real kind of demoralization of the sort that you see in a lot of, of course, a lot of Connecticut's, um, Connecticut cities like Bridgeport and Hartford and, and Waterbury. And, and, and it's, and I wanted to write a book about this. And I finally decided that the, that the best way to come at the book was to approach it through the lens of Amazon, because one reason we've ended up with this great regional inequality in America is that we have this incredible um, concentration of our, of our economy in certain companies in, in, in certain sectors of our of our economy. And so you have, especially with tech, of course, you have all this retail money that used to be spread all around the country um, in local mom and pop stores or regional department stores or um, or bigger companies. It, it was just really kind of spread all around the, con- the country. Um, this kind of this revenue, if you picture in these kind of crude terms, this revenue was just kind of flowing all around all around the country. And now increasingly, you have this one, as we shift e-commerce, we have this one company that's so dominant in e-commerce and so much of this revenue, so much of this daily business activity is now just being hoovered, sucked into, into Amazon and into the cities where it's based, whether it's you know Seattle and Washington, where it now has its main headquarters. And then also cities like Boston, where you have now I think seven or 8,000 high paid Amazon um, uh, sort of salary professional jobs, while all the Pittsfields out there are left with either nothing at all in terms of this this business activity, or if they're lucky, they get a, a warehouse with low paid jobs like like Waterbury Water might get. Mm. And I alluded at the top of the show, you know, I've bought things from Amazon. Many of us do because it's convenient. But from what you're talking about and in your book with all the research that you've done, you know, the fact that, you know, Amazon became an e-commerce you know, tech giant for a reason, but it could have made different decisions uh, to help these communities that are left with no opportunity. Exactly. I mean, I think one of the responses I, I get often, or, or well, certainly the response I got from the company was, look, this is all inevitable. This is all just the result of these larger forces in the economy, whether it's globalization or, or e-commerce and technology, these are all things that are going to happen no matter what. And it just so happens that we're the company that is occupying um, this this dominant perch now in this new economy. And and that's, that's true to some extent. Uh, there are obviously larger forces operating um, on us all the time. But I do believe that the company bears responsibility still, that it does have agency and it's made specific choices that have that have exacerbated the, the trends that I described in the book. Um, on, on the regional uh, question, for instance, they, if the company, if the company were were cons- more concerned about these these huge imbalances that have that have opened up in the country, which are not just unhealthy for each kind of place, but also very unhealthy for our politics. I believe that one big reason our politics have gone kind of haywire these last few years, and one big reason why Donald Trump won the 2016 election has to do with these these regional inequalities and the resentments they produce. And if the company were more concerned about this and more tuned to this this dynamic, it could, for instance, have decided to put its second headquarters in a city that really could have used the boost. And right in one fell swoop by putting 25,000 or 50,000 of these high-paid jobs, massive investment in a St. Louis, in a Cleveland, in a Milwaukee, in a Baltimore, would have made just an incredible difference. Um, and instead it chose to put that second headquarters, of course, 
in Metro Washington, D.C., what was already the wealthiest city in the country. And so now you're going to get this huge fancy headquarters right across the Potomac um, from Washington and Arlington, Virginia. Um, and it's just a class, you know, the ultimate kind of rich, rich get richer dynamic uh, there. But and then other examples, too, of the companies making specific choices. They 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 have been especially aggressive in seeking tax, um, avoiding taxes at, at all levels of, of sort of taxation from, you know, from federal corporate income taxes down to the local taxes that it tries to avoid when it when it seeks all these subsidies uh, for its warehouses, it's been it's a, it is especially aggressive in in driving um, productivity expectations within the warehouses, which which is what really what what is making the work there so difficult. The, the pay has increased at the warehouses in the last few years. They had to increase the pay, but with the reason why there's such incredibly high turnover at these jobs, on average about 100% turnover in a year, is is has has less to do with the pay than it does with the incredibly strenuous, rudimentary, um, draining nature of the work. And that's why these jobs are not something to be celebrated um, for a place like Waterbury. These are not jobs that people build careers around, that they support families around. Uh, they're jobs that they come, you know, that come and go. Um, you, come, you come for a few months, you come for a year, and then you move on to something better. Um, this is not a sustainable kind of economic development. Again, you're hearing Alec McGillis here on Where We Live, ProPublica reporter and author of Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America, uh, as we're talking about some of the working conditions at uh, these Amazon facilities. I just wanted to mention at the time I had read that, you know, Branford uh, may be moving uh, towards a last-mile delivery station. NBC News described a last-mile delivery station as the last link in Amazon's fulfillment operations before packages are delivered to customers' doorsteps, and they're considered the most dangerous type of Amazon facility, a, a report identifying injury rates more than 40% higher than warehouses. We're going to continue talking with Alec right after a short break. If you're on hold, waiting to join the conversation, keep holding. We'll be right back. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. First is Connecticut Public's end of the fiscal year membership campaign. Here's how you can support where we live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. We're talking about Amazon's long reach into America and how the tech giant has widened economic inequality, concentrating wealth in a few select places while many communities are left without opportunities. My guest on Zoom is Alec McGillis, a ProPublica reporter and author of Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America. I wanted to take a quick call. Steve's calling in from Waterbury. Steve, we've just got about a minute. Go ahead. Hello, how are you? Doing well. What did you want to share? Um, yes, I wanted to sort of articulate what some of our frustrations. I live in the Gilmartin neighborhood next to this proposed site, and we have seen the 1% make decisions about our, our community that don't include us. And so we have basically, based on our experience, there's a number of things that we believe. We believe we have a right to self-determination regarding the economic and environmental impact on our community. We believe we have a right to find out what the corporate record is of the people who want to move into our neighborhood. In other words, their, their, their environmental record, their worker safety record. Amazon has hundreds of OSHA inspections on, on the OSHA website. We're going to do an analysis of how many of them have been cited and what the citations were related to. 
We have a right to general transparency about the proposal. We've asked for information from Blue Water. We've not received anything from them. The mayor has not been open and transparent about the process, about who's on the committee making the decisions. Um, we have a right to exciting that's compatible with our neighborhood. We've had to deal with drug tracks and casinos and mall proposals over the years. Yeah, and those are all really those are all really important points. And I know our guest Alec talked about how often this is done in secrecy until uh, you know the the ink is ready to dry, uh, so to speak. And so Alec, uh, respond to what Steve shared, and then also you know there's been rising rents and a reported slowdown in growth that's leading Amazon to begin renting warehouse space. So put that slowdown in context for us. Yes, it's actually, it's, it's, it's kind of striking that they're still pushing to build this warehouse despite local resistance, given the fact that they are, that the company's now becoming, uh, it's basically dawning on them that they have somewhat overbuilt. Um, they, they're really kind of struggling right now with, with trying to get things right. They, they had such a huge surge in orders during the pandemic that they just massively uh, built out their, their warehouse uh, footage. They're, they, grew by about 50% in that first year of the pandemic to incredible growth in in their their warehouse capacity and and now they've found themselves somewhat overextended in some places and um but clearly they still believe that that at least in in the Waterbury area that they do need this this space um so that's just something that the kind of context to keep in mind that that there's in some places you might end up with them actually having more more space than they actually need um, but as far as some of the other points that Steve raises, I mean, very good ones, very good, you know, points of concerns for the local residents to to become more um, to you know to read up on. You know, the OSHA um, issues, for instance. There are Steve's right. There are there are just countless um, uh, inspections and investigations underway at Amazon warehouses over workplace accidents. I describe several of them in my book, including several fatalities, very tragic fatalities in warehouses. And, you know, of course, urge Stephen and, and his neighbors to, to, to just re- read up on that in the book, because it's all, it's all in there, really, just this, um, all these records I was able to get through public information requests and, and digging um, into what's, what's happened in a lot of these, these windowless warehouses where we have no real idea what's, what's going, going on inside them. And we're just we keep buying our stuff and not really wanting to know what's actually happening um, inside these huge behemoths um, of the sort that, that might be arriving in Waterbury. Can we talk about unionization? I know on our show, we've also discussed, you know, the Long Island distribution centers, David and Goliath union win, although Amazon has yet to recognize the vote, Alex. That's right. Um, it was an incredible moment there in, in Staten Island, you know, the very first time that that a union, uh, the group of workers, was able to win an organizing election in an Amazon warehouse. It just, it's just really hard to overstate what an incredible upset this was. Um, these, these these workers were not even backed by a by a traditional existing union. They did this all on their own. So after after years and years, where regular unions had been un- unable to to um, to win an election or even hold an election in an Amazon warehouse, um, with just this one recent attempt down in Alabama. Where they they failed uh, last year to to win an election there. Along came this group of workers in Staten Island, and they did it all on their own. It's just an, it was an incredible moment. They do still face a very long road. They do still have to um, uh, negotiate a contract with Amazon, and Amazon will will drag that out as long as possible. But just the fact that this, that these workers were able to win this election in this huge warehouse um, in the largest city in the country 
was was really an incredible moment in in sort of modern labor history. Mm. You know, we asked uh, our own governor, Connecticut Governor uh, uh, Ned Lamont, uh, just about um, you know development in our state just a few weeks ago, and we had a a caller who asked about affordable housing for seniors, and the governor actually rolled into uh, bringing this up with Amazon. Now, let's take a listen to that 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 clip. Let's say Amazon was looking at the state of Connecticut, and one of the things they said was, you got some nice um, housing out in the suburbs, but it's pretty pricey. I'm trying to get housing for um, 20-somethings. That's how I'm going to be able to get my uh, company growing with that type of talent. So there are a lot of really important reasons to get our housing um, up. So the governor is treating this as a hypothetical that Amazon could be looking, and then the state should adapt housing accordingly. But in your view, is this already the reality in, in the communities that's happening, Alec? That's you know, it's a good question. I wonder. I'm curious whether the governor there was speaking about um, which kind of jobs he was talking about, um, mm-hmm. because you do have you've all these warehouses already in Connecticut. You, you mentioned where where they are around the state, and then this new one may be coming to Waterbury and. But, and that's one kind of job. That's the sort of that's the the mass low wage Amazon job, you know, starting at sixteen, seventeen, eighteen dollars an hour. Very high turnover, very grueling. Then you have these other Amazon, completely other Amazon jobs, the headquarters jobs, the salary jobs that are for engineers and developers, um, marketers that that are you know paying one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year with with you know stock options and all the rest. Those are the jobs that are now going to the winner-take-all cities. Those are the jobs that are going to Boston, that are going to D.C., New York, um, of course, Seattle, and a few other places in the country. And and I suspect that that the governor might have been um, talking about trying to get more of those kind of jobs um, in, 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 uh, in Connecticut, because right now Connecticut is one of the places that has been largely bypassed for for those kind of um, those kind of tech jobs, when it comes to Amazon, and it's one reason you end up with this this incredible soaring, this incredible regional disparity that I'm so worried about, and why you end up with cities like uh, Hartford and Waterbury and Bridgeport and New Haven um, falling so, so much further behind the Boston's. When we think about Amazon dominance, uh, there's also uh, the News Times here reporting Amazon is planning to open a fresh grocery store in Brookfield, Connecticut. If it were to open today, it'd be the first in New England. There's also potential fresh grocery stores in Westport, Orange. Uh, there's a few in Massachusetts. You know, react to that a part of Amazon uh, now growing and potentially seeing many of those stores uh, in communities, Alec. Well, it's just another sign of its extraordinary dominance. When the company is just, it's hard, you know, you, you go across the board, just all the different realms now in which it's um, growing, getting a foothold and becoming dominant, whether it's, you know, of course, in, in entertainment um, and then the, the cloud. We haven't talked even talked about the, the whole sort of realm of the cloud, all these huge data centers where Amazon is now by far the largest player also in that realm. I'm just basically running these um, centers, these servers that that so much of our daily life now, our Zoom and our Netflix and all the rest are are routed through there. And that that's really now the, in a way, the most profitable profitable part of the company. And then, yes, now it's in in grocery as well, not just Amazon Fresh, but of course, Whole Foods. And Mm -hmm. it really, what we are now approaching, I think people need to realize this, that we're, we're approaching a moment very much like what we had back in the early 20th century. Um, when it came, comes to monopoly, we have the, 
the rise of a whole new group of monopolies and quasi-monopoly companies that um, that are really are threatening free competition in this country. And when this happened back in the early 20th century with Standard Oil and, and all, 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 all of those guys, we decided to take it on in a big way. And we decided to somehow break those companies up or rein them in. And the big question facing us now is whether we're going to be will, able and willing to do that again with this new generation of giants and that is the big question uh, before we let you go alec morning consult ranked amazon as one of the top trusted companies in the country number two behind uh, the united states postal service uh, or maybe it's ups here does that surprise you that amazon is so trusted no it doesn't i mean i think the fact is that a lot of a lot of us have just come to rely on it extraordinarily because we, and one reason we do that is that we don't want to think too hard about what actually lies that e- behind that easy one click and convenience um and that dependence grew even even greater during the pandemic and i and i do but i do believe that one thing i was hoping to accomplish with my book was to get people to think harder about what lies behind that one click and and get people to encourage people not to necessarily boycott amazon or go cold turkey but to as much as possible moderate our reliance on the company and, and return to the physical communities in which we live um, because those communities are what make that those the, the institutions and businesses of our communities are what make them you know, good places to live, places we care about. And if we just let them wither, um, it's we're we're gonna we're really gonna miss them when they're gone. That's Alec McGillis, ProPublica reporter and author of Fulfillment: Winning and Losing in One Click America. A really great book, and we love talking with you, Alec. We hope you come back. Thank you so much. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Uh, before you start the rest of your day, have you supported Connecticut Public with a pledge? Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how.